Exodus 5, verses 1 through 23 is our text. Exodus chapter 5. Open your Bible, navigate on your device. The topic, unable to meet the quota of bricks unreasonably demanded by Pharaoh, the Hebrew crew chiefs are beaten by their Egyptian taskmasters. The title of our message, Brick or Beat. Let's pray. And Cindy, I can always count on you. Father, thanks for our morning uh, here at Calvary. We appreciate the opportunity to relax and rest in the Spirit and have Him teach us, Lord, from the Word. We want to have the interpretation of this text and then the application of it to our own lives. You can do that, Lord, and in, in a sense, only you can do that, and so we ask that you would. Bless our time together, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Memes are captioned photos or videos on social media that are intended to be funny by ridiculing human behavior. Have you encountered any with the caption, the struggle is real? Well, there's one that's a picture of someone desperate to cook a slice of bacon using a hairstyling flat iron. <laughs> I mean, who hasn't tried that? Another shows a compact car with a home window air conditioner installed plugged into a gasoline generator bolted on the trunk lid. <laughs> What's scary about that one is I think that's real. There are a slew of struggle is real memes involving T-Rexes trying to do things with their tiny arms, like make their bed. <laughs> hey, I like this interactive stuff. We'll have to do this more often. In our verses, Moses confronts Pharaoh for the first time. For Moses and the Hebrews, the struggle is real. Instead of letting the Hebrews go on a three-day religious holiday, Pharaoh orders them to meet their regular quota of bricks while withholding the necessary straw to make them. Instead of rallying behind Moses as their deliverer, the Hebrew foremen blame him for their worsening predicament. God had promised he would lead his people out of Egypt. Why put up with Pharaoh's refusals? Well, one reason for it is something we mention quite a lot, but that is so important we can't emphasize it too much. I'm talking about God's long-suffering. God was long-suffering towards Pharaoh. One thing we should realize about God's long-suffering, by virtue of our relationship with Jesus Christ, we become active participants with God when he is long-suffering. As he waits... We wait with him, and as such, we can find ourselves in peril like the Jews and perplexed like Moses. I'll organize my comments about long-suffering around two points. Number one, your participation in God's long-suffering will lead you into peril, and number two, your participation in God's long-suffering will leave you feeling perplexed. Let's take a look at the peril in verses 1 through uh, 19. There are always two primary reasons for God's long-suffering. The first is to give every sinner genuine opportunities to repent and be saved. The second is to show that God gave those genuine opportunities in abundance so that the unrepentant sinner has no argument about God being unfair in his eternal judgment. The waiting that Moses and the Hebrews were called upon to endure while God dealt with Pharaoh illustrates our own waiting while God strives today with sinners to be saved. And so that's going to be the application. Let's look at the interpretation as well, beginning in verse 1. 
After Moses, afterward, rather, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, thus says the Lord God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. You don't need to say much to say a lot. Some of history's greatest speeches were incredibly short. God's message to Pharaoh right up there with the best of them, just a few words that get right to the point without any beating around the bush. If the goal was to deliver Israel from Egypt, why start by asking permission to take a long weekend to celebrate a religious feast? Well, what they were asking was reasonable, would not have hurt Egypt or its economy. Pharaoh's refusal establishes that he was against God from the beginning. He was making a willful choice to disobey God. He wasn't being fooled or tricked. He wasn't being deceived. He was asked to do something simple and easy, and he refused, and he will continue to refuse so that by the time you get to the end of Pharaoh's refusals, no one can say that God was unfair. And Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. Now, the Egyptians worshipped many gods. Anubis, Isis, Ra, and Set are some we've heard of from the movies. I saw one list of 49 Egyptian gods. The nations surrounding Egypt also had their multitudes of deities. Pharaoh probably knew that the Hebrews had a god. Everybody did, but he may not have known his name. More to the point, however, the god of Israel would have seemed puny and powerless to Pharaoh. After all, who was the master and who were the slaves? For Pharaoh, it was a case closed. He was in charge. He was powerful. If they had a God, he didn't even need to know his name because he was obviously no match for him. Now, as believers in Jesus Christ, we must embrace the fact that our Lord seems puny and powerless to non-believers. They look around at the evil state of the world and they declare that either there is no God or that he doesn't care. They think it's case closed. Have you ever got the feeling from somebody when you said you were going to pray for them that they thought that you were some puny weakling? That's all you got? I just told you this is happening in, in my life and you're going to pray for me? And, and you know, the, the person, if they're not a believer, they probably blame God to start with, so why would you want to talk to them about it? And so I'm just you know, putting out there what, what people really think. People are like Pharaoh. They think Jesus is some puny, powerless deity. Little do they know God has power to save and that the evil in the world is something he tolerates in order that more lost, perishing humans can hear the gospel and receive eternal life. Sometimes you get wound up and you want to say, you know why God is, seems powerless? Because of you, buddy. That's why. What do you mean? Because you aren't saved. And if you would just get saved, maybe we could get out of here. Maybe you're the last guy that's going to get saved before the rapture takes place. What you see as puny and powerless, we see as compassionate. God is long-suffering. He's not willing that you would perish. I mean, that's some powerful stuff. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And the fact that it waits only empowers it more. Verse 3, so they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please, let us go three days' journey into the desert and sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. Moses and Aaron let Pharaoh know that something had happened to trigger this request. The God of the Hebrews, who had been silent for the past four centuries, had appeared to Moses 
and he was commanding that they go out and worship him. Lest God bring judgment upon the Hebrews for disobeying his call to worship. Now, where did that come from? Well, it came from chapter 4. If you'll recall, Moses was on his way to be the deliverer, and he got stopped by the fact that God was going to kill his firstborn son, Gershom, because the kid wasn't circumcised according to the covenant. And so Moses started to understand, hey, this covenant stuff with God is pretty serious. He takes it, uh, you know, uh, uh, as a serious thing. And so now he's commanding his people to leave and go worship out in the desert. And if we don't obey him, maybe on a bigger scale, we're headed for judgment. And he's warning Pharaoh, hey, you risk losing your workforce should God decide to oppose us for disobeying him. And so there's a lot going on in this little talk. Worshiping and sacrificing in the desert was a command, not an invitation. Without passing over into legalism, which is something we never want to do, it might be better for us to think in terms of commands rather than invitations. Let me give you an example from the book of Hebrews. Uh, It's a good example for us because you're all here in church, so you can't take this as an exhortation against you. But it's a famous one. Everybody knows this, Hebrews 10, 25. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. And so uh, this is a a specific exhortation at the time it was written, but also a general one that if you're a Christian, in the last days there'll be a a movement or a desire or however it comes down to, to not have get, get together so much and, and as a church, and the, uh, the writer is saying, hey, you need to fight that and go to church as often as you can. Now, each of us must decide for ourselves where to attend church and how often, but we should never think of it as merely an invitation to meet with the Lord when everything is just right. When I find just the right church, when, I'm, you know, uh, when I've done with all the work I have to do at my house, when I have just the right flow, when my kids aren't in sports activities, when everything finally settles down, I can go to church two or three times a year. That, that's not what this verse is saying. Going to church isn't an invitation. The Lord isn't inviting you to come to church. He's commanding you to go and be the church. Because coming to church is being the church, ministering one to another, using your gifts and talents and abilities. And so people say, well, I don't need to go to church to worship the Lord. No, you don't, but you need to be with the church in order to use your gifts and your talents and abilities. Otherwise, you're all by yourself. God says the church is like a building. He says it's like a body. I like the body one. It'd be like you know, saying my hand doesn't need to come with me to church this morning. I'm going to leave my hand at home to do some scrubbing on the sink. The rest of me is going to go to church. So I think you know where I'm headed with this. So we, you know, don't want to cross over into legalism. I'm certainly not exhorting you because you're actually here. Uh, you're at church and you're regulars. But that's the idea. In other areas, we sometimes also, because Jesus is so gracious, we think, oh, that's an invitation to worship or that's an invitation to obey. The Lord says, be ye holy as I am holy. Oh, yeah, that's a great idea. I'll do that someday. But right now, I've got a few habits and hobbies that I'm working through. That's not an invitation. It's a command. And we should start looking at these things as loving, blessed commands, knowing that the Lord has our best interest in mind. So verse 4, then the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from their work? Get back to your labor. 
Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are many now, and you make them rest from their labor. Pharaoh was too well informed to not know who Moses was. Still, he addressed Moses as if he were just another one of the Hebrew slaves. You and I are citizens of heaven who are ambassadors to the non-believers of the earth. They mostly reject our authority, and that's to be expected. There's some political drama in Pharaoh's use of the word labor. You might remember that the previous Pharaoh thought that the population of the Hebrews was getting dangerously high, so he ordered the murder of the male infants to control the population. That didn't work. So the Egyptians went another route. They put the Hebrews under tribute, demanding that they pay uh, tribute to them, and then they kept increasing it until they finally enslaved them. And so this was their uh, current strategy for keeping 600,000 men and maybe 1.3 million people under control. So the same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their officers saying, you shall no longer give the people straw to make brick as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves and you shall lay on them the quota of bricks which they made before. You shall not reduce it. There's an incredible amount of explanation in the commentaries about brick-making. They're almost like reading Pinterest. You know, did you ever get a flow on Pinterest? Everybody is making minestrone at the same time, I guess. You know, I don't know how these things work out. But, I mean, every, uh, there, uh, if you want to make bricks, I'll show you some Bible commentaries that, that will tell you exactly how to make bricks with straw and without. The Hebrews had to work overtime to gather straw and still make their daily quota of bricks. That's the main point. Then it says, you shall lay on them the same quota for they are idle. Therefore, if they cry out saying, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Now, Pharaoh's reasoning was that if they had time for worship, they weren't working hard enough. Pharaoh wanted the people of God to be so busy serving him that they had no time for worshiping God. The world will always try its best to keep you too busy for God. By the world, we're talking about the evil world system. God of this world is Satan, we're told. He's the prince of the power of the air. And things are against us. There are hindrances to our walk, obstacles to our walk. And one of them is the world wants you to be busy all the time. So many family activities and kids' sports now interfere with church. didn't used to be that way. Some of you are too young to remember the days when people left Sundays alone. They, they sort of thought, hey, most people go to church on Sunday, or they should, and so we're not going to do anything on Sunday. Well, that's been obliterated because people are super busy, and they need Sunday for all of their activities. And so the, the hard thing for us as Christians, and it is a hard thing, is to try and figure all that out. How do I walk through that minefield of being in the world but not of the world, being involved in church and spiritual activities, doing family things outside of church and in the church. All I can say is this as a principle. The world is geared towards destroying your family. Remember that. The world system, as devised by Satan, in subtle and not-so-subtle ways, is de- desires to destroy your family And for the most part, the world's doing a pretty good job of destroying families. I think we'd agree. So you're not going to strengthen your family by spending more time busy in the world than you are with the Lord. And so you have to make your own decisions. So do I. What do we do on Sunday? What don't we do on Sunday? And all of that. Just remember that it's not 
You can't use the argument that these activities outside of church are going to strengthen my family life because they're designed to undercut your family life. Even though they might seem uh, otherwise, the world is not your friend. The world is your enemy. Verse 9, let more work be laid on the men that they may labor in it and let them not regard false words or words that would give them hope. Pharaoh reasoned that time away from brickmaking could only put ideas of freedom and civil rights in their heads, and so he wanted to get control of that. In verse 10, the taskmasters of the people and their officers went out and spoke to the people, saying, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go get yourselves straw where you can find it, yet none of your work will be reduced. So far, this deliverance thing wasn't going very well. Instead of packing a picnic basket for their weekend of worship, the Hebrews' workload had been increased exponentially and there would be no relief. So the people were scattered abroad throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble instead of straw. Apparently, the powerful straw lobby wouldn't allow the Hebrews to access their fields. And so they had to go into fields that had already been harvested and pull stubble out of the ground. It was inferior and harder to get a load, but that's what they had to do. And by the way, the Hebrews still had to tend their own fields and their own flocks. They weren't a workforce that punched a clock and got paid. They were slaves who were tasked with making bricks, now without straw, but they also had their own home life that they needed to take care of. And so this is a tremendous burden. Reminds me of that old Tennessee Ernie Ford song. Do you remember about owing your soul to the company store? Who remembers that song and will sing it with me? Ready? You load 16 tons, and what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me because I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. Boom, boom, boom. Get into it. Come on. And the taskmasters forced them to hurry, saying, fulfill your work, your daily quota, as when there was straw. And the officers of the children of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not fulfilled your task in making brick both yesterday and today as before? So the taskmasters were Egyptian officials who oversaw the work. The officers of the children of Israel were Hebrews who acted as crew chiefs. When the quotas fell short, the Egyptians beat the crew chiefs, and I mean they whipped or scourged them. This was no payroll deduction or loss of vacation days or reduction of health insurance benefits. They didn't put something in their file uh, so that they couldn't get promoted to the next crew. I mean, they beat them. So the officers of the children of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh. Now, I will say this about Pharaoh. He seems willing to hear everybody. I mean, I I don't know what else he had going, but everybody who wants to come to talk to Pharaoh just comes in and and says hi to him. And so he has an audience with these guys, and they say, why are you dealing thus with your servants? There's no straw given to your servants. And they say to us, make brick, and indeed your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. Sounds like the officers had no idea that Pharaoh was reacting to what Moses and Aaron had asked. At the very least, they had not yet put together that it was because of God's message that they were being mistreated. Christians are still tortured, we're still martyred. The struggle is real for our brothers and sisters around the world. Let's not insult them by thinking some minor first world setback is a struggle. Remember Paul the Apostle, if he's the writer to Hebrews, some people think he is, some people think he isn't. But if he was, whoever was said at one point, you haven't yet resisted to the shedding of blood. 
How would you like that for counsel? Oh, I'm so sad. Sorry. Oh, yeah? Are you bleeding yet? Well, no. He goes, well, then forget it. Nobody counseled with Paul. But he said, you are idle. Idle. Therefore, you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Therefore, go now and work, for no straw shall be given you, and yet you shall deliver the quota of bricks. Pharaoh's perspective was that they were demanding religious freedom, and he was just not going to grant it. After all, the God of the Hebrews was a lightweight. Just look at them. They had no leverage, he thought. Verse 19, and the officers of the children of Israel saw that they were in trouble after it was said, you shall not reduce any bricks from your daily quota. Their trouble was not going to be abated. If anything, it would get worse. I've told you this before, but often my counsel to people is that their situation is going to get worse before it gets better, if it ever gets better. And sometimes that's just the truth. It's not that you want to put a hard edge on things or you want to be edgy or something. I mean, it's just the truth. People come to you in a situation and you say, hey, Apart from divine intervention, which we will pray for diligently, your situation is bad, it's terrible, and it's likely to get worse, and it may never get any better. Now, nobody wants to hear that, but sometimes you need to hear things like that. You you need that truth. And so these guys understood, hey, we went and asked Pharaoh, and he said he knows all about this. In fact, it was his idea, and it's going to continue. And so we're in a world of hurt. God could have fast freed the children of Israel. He could have went right in with Moses and Aaron and said, let my people go or I'm going to kill the firstborn of all Israel tonight. Nothing to preclude him from doing that. It was nothing for him to overcome Pharaoh and the so-called gods of Egypt. But God is long-suffering. He's not willing that any should perish. He waits so men can repent. Lots of biblical examples of this, probably none better than the flood of Noah, Early in the book of Genesis, God, and I quote, saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I'll destroy man who I've created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But then he also said that mankind's days shall be 120 years. That's kind of crazy. I'm going to destroy everybody. They're all wicked. There's no hope for them. And I'm going to wait to do it for 120 years. The Apostle Peter refers to this in comments. The divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. And so Peter says what happened was God's long-suffering waited to see what was going to come. In a very real sense, God's long-suffering has been waiting ever since Adam and Eve sinned in Eden. God has tolerated evil and withheld his judgment even until today. Now, that all sounds great until you realize you have to participate in God's long-suffering. While God's long-suffering waits, you might triumph or you might be tortured. For sure, you're going to be mistreated and misunderstood by the non-believing world, They considered Jesus puny and powerless and his followers fools. The Apostle Paul explained it like this in 1 Corinthians 4. He said, To the present hour we hunger and thirst, we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. We labor working with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, 
the off-scouring of all things until now. He's talking about all of that for the sake of ministering the gospel. Off-scouring, by the way, is the stuff that sticks to your cooking pan that needs to be scraped off. It's worse than just filth. And so Paul's laying it on here pretty thick. But it's true. It's your portion as an agent of God's long-suffering to face peril. Now, God's long-suffering is not limitless. It waits, but as in the days of Noah, his judgment comes. I'm going to say this for a third or fourth time this morning. God tolerates evil for the sake of giving sinners opportunities to be saved. But he does have a plan to eradicate evil once and for all. And when he finally fully implements it, it's going to be too late for the lost. They will pass on to eternal conscious torment. And so it's not that God is powerless. He is powerful. And right now, it's the power of the gospel unto salvation that he is wielding while his long-suffering waits and withholds judgment that is most definitely coming like a freight train. And once it's here, after the church is removed and the great tribulation starts, there is no stopping it. I know we watch these History Channel shows and stuff where they talk about the apocalypse and things that could happen, and they give you the idea that if we could stop global warming or get a hold of pathogens or get rid of nuclear weapons, then we could all live happily ever after. But God says, no, there is judgment coming on this world. It's a wicked place, and I can't withhold it forever. And the great tribulation is when his wrath is going to be poured out in abundance, uh, getting forward to the kingdom of God on earth. And so that's what's going on. God's not a puny weakling. He's just waiting because he loves sinners. We need to do our part to hasten the end by serving the Lord as his agents of long-suffering, bringing the gospel to the lost. Now, the remaining verses, our participation leaves us feeling perplexed. It's an effective strategy to get your opponents to fight amongst themselves. In the last Avengers movie, Civil War, the bad guy devised a plan for revenge that pitted the heroes against each other, and it worked. In the end, Captain America fights Iron Man, and the team was divided into two factions. We won't know what happens till May. Anyway, I, I knew some of you would get that. Pharaoh was no dummy. He recognized Moses as a potential threat. By increasing the work, he hoped to drive a wedge between the Hebrews and their would-be deliverer, and it worked. Then as they came out from Pharaoh, verse 20, they met Moses and Aaron who stood there to meet them. They said to them, let the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. Uh, these crew chiefs were getting the brunt of the punishment. Not only were they beaten by the Egyptians, but they had to drive their own people much harder, making them unpopular to say the least. In the New Testament, when the believers got beaten for representing Jesus, they rejoiced for being worthy to suffer in his name. These crew chiefs had a long way to go in their understanding of what it means to walk with the Lord. Now, cut them some slack. They're not filled with the Holy Spirit. They don't have much of a background in even Jewish things because they're not a nation yet. But it would have been possible for them to come out of this and say, oh, this is for the sake of the Word of God. Our God has pitted, us against, or pitted himself against Pharaoh, and this is round one. We got beaten for it. We're rejoicing to be counted worthy uh, and stuff. But they, they weren't there yet. And, and like I said, we cut them slack, and they're upset. And they blame Moses and Aaron. 
But that tells us that God's long-suffering, it's not just about the unsaved. It provides opportunities for Christians to get their spiritual ducks in a row. It gives God a chance to work on us while we're waiting. The Old Testament prophet Habakkuk called upon God to judge the wickedness of the Jews. Not sure what Habakkuk thought God should do, but it wasn't what God did do. God said, Habakkuk, you're not going to like what I'm going to do. Here's what it is. uh, The nation of Israel is going to be subject to the nation of Babylon for a while. I'm going to discipline my people using Babylon as the rod of discipline. And Habakkuk was freaked out, to say the least. In the end, however, he participated in God's long-suffering and could exclaim, though the fig tree may not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, I rejoice in the Lord. I joy in the God of my salvation. And that, that's what you want. When God's long-suffering waits during a time of discipline or whatever it is, you want to come out the other side of it with that kind of rejoicing. When you receive Jesus Christ, it's just the beginning. It starts a process called sanctification wherein you are changed day by day to become more like the Lord. It won't be complete. You won't be complete until the resurrection and rapture of the church. Meantime, while God's long-suffering waits, he uses the time in which he is striving with sinners to mold and shape you. God is a great multitasker. And so uh, he can work on the sinner's heart and also work on you as well. Now, the Hebrew officers, interesting, describe Pharaoh as having a sword in his hand to kill them. Might that be a slam against the staff in Moses' hand, which was supposed to be so powerful? So Moses has gone in with his staff to talk to Pharaoh, and then Pharaoh said, no, I'm not letting you go. In fact, he used his authority against Israel. And so now these guys are saying, hey, Pharaoh has a sword, you have a staff. Sword beats staff. But that's not true in the spiritual realm. When it's the staff of God in the hands of his called servant, staff beats sword. And we're going to see that. It's going to beat it to death over the next few chapters. I mean, Pharaoh's sword is going to be like a toothpick by the time God gets done with it. We need to get it through our heads that spiritual weapons beat material ones and that the weapons of our warfare are spiritual. And we need to stay within that understanding and fight the good fight with the weapons of our warfare, knowing that we'll win. Now, this wasn't a case of losing round one and then making a Rocky-esque comeback. I see this as a win. I say that again. It was a win. It was a win for the long-suffering of God. He could easily have overcome Pharaoh. It was much harder to tolerate Pharaoh in order to give him opportunities to be saved. The crew chiefs and the Hebrews in total had a lot to learn about God, but so did Moses because in verse 22, he says, uh, turns to the Lord and says, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it you have sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. Now, from our comfortable, safe vantage point, we want to say, Moses, cry me a river. Call the wambulance. Wah, wah. What a whiner. And we want to say that because God had said to Moses in chapter 4, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do all the wonders before Pharaoh, which I put in your hand, but he will not let the people go. And so the very first refusal, Moses is, is out of his mind with perplexity 
What do you mean he's not going to let the people go? I thought you were going to deliver your people. And we want to say, yeah, he is, but he already told you he wasn't going to let them go easily. And so, you know, prepare for it. We, we, I think we talk about affliction and suffering more than any people on the face of the planet here. And you know why we do it? Number one, it's in the Bible. Number two, so you're ready for it. Number, because when it happens, you're still not ready for it. And, and we're just like Moses. I can make fun of Moses all I want, but every trouble that comes into my life, I have the immediately same reaction that he did. God, you're not fair. You promised me this. What are you doing? Those kinds of things. And then I'm reminded that this light affliction is but for a moment. It works for us a far more exceeding weight of eternal glory. And in the context of our study this morning, while God's long-suffering waits, these are the things that I can expect to happen in my life and the lives of other believers. Let me address something inquiring minds might be wondering about. I've been saying God's long-suffering was giving Pharaoh opportunities to repent, but God also said he will not let the people go. Is that some kind of contradiction? Not at all. For one thing, God's foreknowledge of what Pharaoh would ultimately choose doesn't mean God determined Pharaoh's choice. He was free to choose. For another thing, there are instances in the Bible where from our perspective, God seems to change his mind. God told Jonah to go to Nineveh and tell them in 40 days you will be overthrown. That was the message. Not repent for the end is near. The message was in 40 days you won't exist anymore. Think Sodom and Gomorrah. And Jonah didn't want to deliver the message because he had the sneaking suspicion that if the Ninevites repented out of nowhere, God would relent of his decision to destroy them, and that's exactly what happened. Now, we look at that and say, oh, well, God changed his mind. No, God said, you're done, it's over, you're through, and then they repented, and he says, well, that's, according to my nature, I forgive you. And it's, it makes perfect sense in God's economy. And so uh, Pharaoh... God's offer to him was sincere. Pharaoh could have changed his mind. He could have changed his heart just like the people of Nineveh did. But as we'll see, he only hardens his heart. And at the end, not even Pharaoh and the loss of his firstborn can say that there was anything unfair about God. God didn't sneak up on him and kill his son. He gave him every opportunity to avoid that terrible situation. Discouragement in your Christian walk, you'd better expect it. No matter how much we're reminded that we suffer and have trials and are afflicted, it still stops us in our progress. But God never stops working in us. He began this good work in you, and he will be faithful to complete it. Egypt wasn't delivered in a day. You won't be finished in a day, but you will be in the day you stand before the Lord. And he says with much joy, well done, my good and faithful servant. God's long-suffering waits. You wait with it. Wait patiently with endurance, knowing God is saving whosoever will believe. Let's pray.